Hey, good morning. Welcome to Gospel City Church. My name is Tyler Holder, and I'm our pastor of men's and college ministry here. And if you have your copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to open it to Luke chapter 15. Now, as you're making your way to Luke chapter 15, growing up, I kind of cut my teeth on the fairy tales and tall tales of old. And I don't know if you were like me, but growing up, we would read things like Hansel and Gretel and Rumpelstiltskin, and we would read them so much that they just became a, a part of who we were, right? And, and I noticed that as I came into fatherhood, I, I started being able to recite these stories by memory. And, and I don't know about you, but there were some favorites of mine, right? You had the Johnny Appleseed and he would plant trees and he'd have the Goldilocks and the three little bears and she would, you know, commit burglary and larceny and it was great and all of those awesome things that we want to tell our children. And, uh, and, and I realized a, a couple of years ago that there's a, a company that, that took these stories and made them into movies and that company was called Disney. And Disney made these beautiful stories into these wonderful movies. And one of the movies centers around Rapunzel in the movie Tangled. Any Tangled fans, right? No? Okay, great movie, right? And, and now already just saying that in your head, you're hearing Rapunzel, would you let down your? That was so beautiful. This side's never seen the movie because they didn't say anything. <laughs> Right? And, and you're, you're thinking about how awesome this, you know, you had Maximus and, and the horse and all these wonderful things that happened. And, and then I, as I kind of bought into Tangled and, and listened and, and just really absorbed it, I, I came home one day and my wife showed me this book. It's called The Brothers Grimm. Did you know Disney didn't write Rapunzel? Did you know that? This was news to me, right? So I sit down and, and I open this story and I begin to read it and yo, it is so jacked up. Like, it is a mess. Did, did you know their happily ever after wasn't as seamless as Disney would have you believe? Did you know that, right? And, and as I'm reading this story of Rapunzel, I'm, I'm learning new things for the first time, the story that I had heard for years. And, and I'm, my eyes are open. I'm like, man, so he falls out of the towers, blinded by thorns, and wanders through the woods for years? That's gross. Why did Disney leave that out? I still don't know. I still don't know, right? So I, I came to two conclusions as I am pouring into the Brothers Grimm. I, one is that Disney lied to me, um, and, and they continue to do so with these awesome, wonderful, horrible stories. And two, the Brothers Grimm were some messed up brothers. They needed some help, big time. And here's the reality is that so often we hear stories, and we hear them so much that we assume we know how the story goes. Like you just assumed that Maximus was in the story, that Pascal the lizard was in the story. But then when you go back and read it, you realize, wait, wait, this is, this is way different than what I remember. And here in Luke 15, what we're gonna see in this parable, and remember a parable is Jesus using stories and pictures from everyday life to communicate his heart and his ways. What we're gonna see in this parable is a familiar parable. It's a parable that has been said is the best piece of short story writing in the world. It's a parable called that, the parable of the prodigal son. And what we'll see today is that this parable is something we've probably heard wrong for years. And that the parable is not a parable of a prodigal son in as much as it's a parable of the two lost sons. In fact, we, we've used the word prodigal in, in such a way that we've really lost the understanding and meaning of what it is. 
So before we even jump into our text this morning, I want to present before us a simple definition of prodigal. Because most of us would probably associate the word prodigal with negative. We'd probably say that we don't want a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. I don't want to be prodigal in my living. But really, the word prodigal simply means one who spends or gives lavishly. And as we look at the parable of the two lost sons, what we're going to see is that the prodigal in the story isn't so much the younger son. Yes, he's an idiot. And he does stupid things with the money he's been given. And it's not so much the elder son who is prideful and is just as much of an idiot. What we're going to see is that the prodigal in the story, the one who gives the most lavishly, is the father. And the father, what he gives, what he extends, is far and above anything we could ever ask for. And my hope today is that as we open this familiar parable, is that I I would just challenge us. Could, Could we maybe hear this for the first time? If we could, just reset our minds to everything we've thought we've learned about this parable and just hear it for the first time. And I believe that if we do, what we'll see throughout this parable of the two lost sons is that God's initiating love invites the wayward and the prideful to experience redemption. God's initiating love invites the wayward and the prideful to experience redemption because he's extending to us lavishly love. He's showing us a better way. So as we look at Luke 15, starting in verse 11 and going to the end of the chapter, as we look at this this morning, what we're gonna see is we're gonna see three primary scenes in the parable of the two lost sons. And then we're gonna ask one simple question to help us better grasp and understand this simple singular kingdom principle. But before we jump in and before we do any of that, I'd love to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to your word without presupposition, without predisposition, and just ask you to speak mightily through it. Thank you, Father, that your word declares to us your prodigal love, that you lavishly spend and give and extend time and time and time again. So, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand your word fresh and new today. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I hope you found your way to Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the first two verses just to remind ourselves of the context that Jesus is teaching here, and then we'll jump into our three scenes. If you remember from last week, we looked at Luke 15 starting in verse 1, and this is what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And remember, what we said last week is is that there's two primary sets of characters that Jesus is addressing. He's addressing tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors and sinners are this unique group throughout Scripture. They primarily are known by their sin, by their actions. But they come to Jesus with an understanding. They come to him with an understanding that their sin has separated them from him. They come to Jesus with the understanding that they have nothing to bring. They are indeed sinners in need of a savior. And notice, they come to him with a desire to hear what he says. Contrast that to the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and scribes all throughout the gospels are are seen as this self-righteous bunch of people that come to Jesus trusting in their works, trusting in their good deeds, trusting in their assumptions. They come to Jesus with a self-righteous superiority that says, I don't need a savior, I have myself. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's tax collectors and sinners and scribes and Pharisees today among us. And who we are will impact how we hear what Jesus is about to tell us. 
So right out of the gate, before we even jump into the parable of the two lost sons, I want to present before you what we presented last week. What type of ears are we hearing what Jesus is saying? Are we more like tax collectors and sinners that are drawing near to Jesus to hear what he has to say, understanding our position before him? Or are we like Pharisees and scribes coming to Jesus, grumbling at him because of what he's saying? Because we don't like it. We don't agree with it. It doesn't jive well with me. That's the context that Jesus is teaching here in Luke 15. Now fast forward down to verse 11 and we'll see the first scene of our parable today, a scene of reckless living. Notice what verse 11 says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. So the first scene that we see here in the parable of the two lost sons is a scene of reckless living. You'll notice the parable begins by Jesus telling us there's two sons, and then he zooms in on the younger of the two. The younger of the two comes to his father and says, Father, give me what's mine when you die. Essentially, the son is coming with reckless words to the father and saying, Father, I don't desire you. I only desire the benefit that comes from you. I want what is mine after you go. After you're dead, and in the first century, what would happen at this moment is that the hearers of this parable would go, yo, that, that boy's about to get knocked because that is the most disrespectful thing anybody could say to a father. That is totally out of line. You're wishing death upon your father just so you can have the benefit of what he can give you? They would be awestruck. And then they would be even more amazed at what Jesus says. The father acquiesces to the son's demands. He goes and divides up his property and gives this younger son what he's asking. You see, when, when we begin to examine the life of the younger son, we see the reckless words that he's treating the father with. He, he's a, addressing the father, letting him know that the only thing that he sees that the father is good for is benefit, not a relationship. And as I read this parable of the two lost sons, what I see is I see myself a lot in the younger son. I see myself a lot in my approaching God. God, would you just give me what I want? Please and thank you. I see myself desiring the benefit of him and not desiring him. I wonder if the same is true for you. I wonder if at times you are caught up in your younger brother-ishness to the point where your approach to God is reckless. You're extending reckless words to him, in essence, letting him know, I desire nothing to do with you. I only desire the benefit that you can give. But notice what happens. His reckless words lead to reckless decisions. Verse 13, not many days later, essentially a very short time, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
You see, the, the reckless words that the younger son treats the father with lead to reckless decisions. The reckless decision that the younger son has right here is that he takes the property that the father has given him, sells it probably at a discounted rate so he can get cash quick and goes on a journey to a far country because the younger son has bought into the lie, a lie that I affectionately call the Nemo lie. Are you all familiar with Nemo? How many of y'all love Nemo? Come on. The Nemo lie is this. If you remember, Nemo's on the edge of the barrier reef. And his father says, son, don't do it. Don't swim over. Don't go touch that ship. Nemo disregards what his father says, goes, touches the ship. You remember what happens? He gets scooped up and experiences a life without the father. The younger son is guilty of that same type of mentality. Believing that life without the father is far greater than life with him. Don't you know there's greener pastures elsewhere? Liquidates what he has goes on a journey to a far country, a country where nobody would know him, where he'd have no family, he had no relationships. He could do what he wanted. And recklessly, he squanders, wastes everything that he has. We have to understand that the reckless words that we treat our father with lead to reckless decisions, and our reckless decisions leave us with pain, scars, heartache, and loss. Every time. I can remember as a 17-year-old who hadn't come to know Jesus yet. I haven't believed the gospel, and I'm making decision after decision after decision that is just foolish, 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 reckless, reckless, reckless. And now as a 33-year-old man who has been following Jesus for a few years now, looking back and seeing how my decisions as a teenager left scars that still impact me. So can I just say for a moment to, to those that are teenagers today, your decisions will make a difference in your life. Are they decisions that are reckless? Reckless decisions always lead to scars, always lead to hurt, always lead to pain, always lead to loss. I see the story on repeat when I talk with college students a lot, except their reckless decisions are a little different. Their reckless decisions are pursuing gains because again, they bought into the lie that there is a greater life apart from the Father. And I just want to shout at them, please don't, because the reckless decisions you're making now will impact who you become. And then there's men and there's women, there's husbands and there's wives, there's fathers and there's mothers. And I look, and the crazy thing is, is that you're doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. Because we've bought into the lie that life apart from the Father is far greater than life with him. And that I desire the benefit of him without having him near. Our reckless words lead to reckless actions and our reckless actions lead to reckless living. Notice what happens. Verse 14, he had spent everything. He'd wasted it. A severe famine arose in that country, something he couldn't control, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The culmination of his reckless living. He's experiencing something he had never experienced before in the father's house, and that's need. Something new to him. He's wasted everything, and now he's in need. So much so that for a Jew of the first century, again, they would be flummoxed, they'd be flabbergasted at what Jesus has just said. 
He's hiring himself out. He's literally attaching himself to somebody of a foreign country. And he's not just associating with them and their uncleanness, but now he's going into the fields of pigs, which are the epitome of unclean, and he's feeding them. He's He's with them, and not only that, he's desiring, literally the word there for desire or longing is, is to lust after. He's lusting after the food of pigs. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. You see, the younger son, the younger son had nowhere to go because in his recklessness, he thought the father would never receive him back. In this moment in his life, he is so bought in to life without the father. And in his mind, the the only option for him is to go and do something unthinkable. Hear me. You and I are born living recklessly. We're born in rebellion to God because we're born in sin. And our sin separates us from him. And the beauty of our loving father is that there's... There's no recklessness that we could do that would preclude us, that would hinder us from coming to him. And oh, that we would come to him soon because the further we dwell in this land of recklessness, the more scars we'll have, the more pain we'll have, the more callousness we'll have, the more hurt we'll have, the more loss. So the first scene that we see is the younger son's reckless living. The second scene opens and we see a scene of reconciliation. Notice what happens in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This scene of reconciliation starts with this recognition from the younger son. Notice what happens in verse 17. He came to himself. Literally, the word there is is repent. He, He recognizes that his position as living recklessly shouldn't be where he is, and he turns. He sees what he has done. He acknowledges what he has done, and he turns, and he pursues the father. There's a moment where where he understands there must be, there must be some responsibility, all responsibility for what I have decided to do. It's no one else's fault. He recognizes his sin. He recognizes his reckless living and he turns. And as he turns, notice what he does. He realizes for the very first time that life in the father's house wasn't bad. Life with the father was actually pretty good. So much so that the father's servants had food to eat. How much more would a son be treated? He sees for the first time, the love of the Father because he recognizes his own sinfulness. For you and I this morning, if we're far from Jesus, we'll never fully recognize the love of the Father without first recognizing the gravity of our sin. Oh, that we would see our sin for what it is, recklessness, a pursuit after something that won't satisfy. But his... Reconciliation begins with a recognition and and it leads to a resolve. Notice what happens in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
I don't know about you, but growing up, one of the worst things my mom could say to me is, we're gonna wait till your father gets home. Anybody else, right? It could be 10 in the morning and she could get real sweet with me because I've been an idiot and she'd get down and just smile real nice. Tyler, and I'd be thinking, man, I got away with it. I got away with it. Easy roller, come on, mom. She said, Tyler, we're just gonna wait for your dad to get home, okay? No, please don't. Whatever punishment you would give, give it to me now. I would spend the next seven hours rehearsing my story, right? It, it, it wasn't my fault, Dad. It was the dog. The dog's five pounds. Clearly, no, it wasn't my fault. It was those two other kids you had, my brothers. It was their fault. It was, it was my mom's. It was your wife's fault, Dad. Come on. And about 20 minutes before he'd come home, I'd put on every pair of underwear. <laughs> Don't act like you didn't. You know you did. And somehow he always knew. He'd look, you wearing a diaper? Maybe. I don't know. And as soon as he'd come home, man, I would, I would just lay into the story I'd rehearsed. And the crazy thing is, is that that's exactly what the younger son's doing. He, it's the proverbial, we'll wait till your father gets home moment. Do you see what he does? He's rehearsing his story. I will arise and go to my father. There's action in reconciliation. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Notice in his story, in his speech that he's rehearsing, he's not placing the blame on anybody else. It's not, Father, it's your fault. You gave me that money. Father, it's not my fault. It's the fault of those in the faraway country. It's their fault. No, 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 no. You see, our reckless living, the responsibility for that is, is placed upon us. You and I have decided to live recklessly. And the younger son's response is a beautiful response. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. See, when he comes to his senses, he realizes that repentance is an admission of the wrong I've done and a turning away from it. I will arise and go. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's resolved to return to his father. He's resolved to repent. He's resolved to throw himself on the father's mercy. Notice what happens. Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, if I'm the younger son and I've been rehearsing this story for an undetermined amount of distance and I see my father running towards me, there's nothing in me that says he's going to kiss me or have compassion upon me. Because remember, the last conversation I had with him, I told him I wished he was dead. I told him I wanted nothing to do with him. I only wanted his benefit. I didn't want a relationship. I had rejected him. And now I see him running towards me. In fact, in the first century, for a man to run was shameful. No man of proper standing would run. And the father in the story is a man of extreme standing, a man of wealth, a man of influence. Notice what he does. He endures the shame to welcome back the son that has shamed him. Do you see it? Do you see the prodigal love of the father? Not just that. He doesn't just welcome him. He has compassion upon him. Literally, the, the, the idea behind compassion is, is that of empathy. He's, he's welcoming the son back and feeling what the son has done. He's, he's empathizing with the younger son. He doesn't just 
have compassion upon him. He has love for him. He embraces him. The idea behind embracing, by the way, is as the father's running, he reaches the son and grabs him, falls on his neck with his arms wrapped around his shoulders. Oh, what a sweet embrace when the younger son returns to the father. He kisses him. And notice the son, doing what he has practiced, launches into his speech, right? Verse 21. Obviously, he's not expecting the father to act this way. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father just stops him. He doesn't, he doesn't even let him finish his speech. He's like, no, 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 no. That's all I need to hear. That's all I need to hear. Recognition of your sin, repentance for your sin, that's all I need to hear. And notice, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly, as fast as you can, the best robe. The best robe of the house is the father's robe. The best robe of the house belonged to the father. Not only bring the best robe and put it on him, but put a ring on his finger, a signet ring, signifying the family that he belonged to. Put shoes on his feet because in his poverty, he had nothing to bring. The father, in reconciling the son to himself, restores him entirely. Did you know the same is true for you and I? Same is true for you and I. When we recognize our sin before a holy God and realize that Jesus, his son, bore the weight of our sins on the cross and through our faith and repentance in him and him alone, we can come to the Father and, and feel this embrace, feel this empathy, be welcomed in as sons and daughters. It's a beautiful thing because you were born recklessly. You were born in rejection and rebellion of God. But the Father welcomes you back. He welcomes you back joyfully. Notice what happens though. He doesn't just stop by clothing him. <laughs> I love it. Put shoes on his feet, verse 23, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. In the first century, if a son would have done what this younger son did, they would have buried an empty casket, signifying that the son was dead, no longer a part of the family. The son had gone from death to life in reconciling himself to the father. The son was lost and now is found. And we see the point of Jesus' story here in the parable of the two lost sons. The point is, is that we are rejoicing. We are excited. We are celebrating just like we did for the lost sheep, just like we did for the lost coin. When what's lost is found, there is a party in heaven because what, what is rightly God's, you and I, created in his image, when we're restored to a right relationship with him, oh, heaven rejoices. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Yo, we're having a party tonight. It's a beautiful picture of the father's lavish love for a son that didn't deserve it. And that same love is extended to you. At this point in the story, you should be asking a question, though. You should be asking the question, we're, we're two-thirds of the way through it. And it's the parable of the two sons. Where's the elder? Where's the elder son? The elder son is cued here in the third scene of the story. It's a scene of rejection. Notice verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. See, the elder brother's where he's always been. 
the elder brother is where he's always been. He's serving the father. But we see a glimpse into his heart here that he's not serving the father for the joy of serving the father. He's serving the father because he desires the benefit of the father, not the father. The elder son and the younger son have the same thing. It's the exact same story. They want the benefit of the father and they don't want a relationship with him. They want what he can give, not him himself. They just go about it in two very different ways. The younger living recklessly, the older being obedient. You see what happens as the younger son is coming back from the field, as he always does, he hears music, he hears dancing. And I can just imagine his mind as he's walking the path to the house and he hears a party. And in his mind, his entitled, prideful, self-righteous mind, he finally thinks, my father got it. He realizes that I'm worth a party. He sees what I've done and now he is honoring me because I'm worth being honored. I guarantee you the party's for me. And if this were a movie, this is the part where the camera would zoom in on the older brother's eyes and they'd be super happy eyes. You know the eyes? Super happy. And he sees a, ser a servant walking by. He goes, servant, come, come, come here, come here. What's happening? What's happening? And the servant goes, oh, you haven't heard? You didn't know? Hey, your brother. Uh-huh, yeah, the one that's dead that I hate. Want nothing to do with that one? Yeah, yeah, that one. He's back. And at that point, his eyes would go from happy to crazy. You know the crazy eyes? Y'all ever seen crazy eyes? These? Except a little crazier. You know what I mean? Like the type of eyes you don't want to be alone with in a room. The older brother's eyes would go from happy to crazy because his anger would begin to flame. And the reason why he's angry is because he feels entitled. He's angry and has no care for the younger brother because he has been the one that's obeyed. You see, for you and I, we have elder brother tendencies sometimes. Our anger, though, is a little different than the elder brother's anger. Our anger usually comes out in, in things like, God, I have done everything you've asked. I deserve fill in the blank. I deserve to be married. I deserve a family. I deserve this promotion. I deserve this money. I deserve to be happy. And the reality is, is that you don't deserve anything. And the pridefulness of your heart and the pridefulness of my heart, we desire the Father's benefit, not the Father, and we are so guilty. We're guilty of the exact same thing that the younger son is. The elder son is angry. He's angry because he feels entitled. And he feels entitled because he's trusted in his works. He's trusted in what he perceives to be of value to the Father. But notice, verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. And again, see the prodigal love of the father. The father comes out. Again, would be extremely disrespectful for a first century man who's of reputation to come out of his own party and entreats him, literally begs him. But the oldest son answered his father, look, no respect, no care. The same reckless words that the son earlier would use, the younger son. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. It's not just angry, self-righteous. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. See, the, the elder son's trusting in his obedience to earn him the benefit of the father. He's trusting in proximity to earn him the benefit of the father. He's entitled because he's lived in the father's house for so long. 
But don't mistake proximity to the Father for relationship with the Father. The reality is, is that we have a lot of elder brother-ishness in us because the younger brothers are easy to spot. Flagrant sin. They're the tax collectors and sinners in verse one. The elder brothers are, are, are a lot more hard to spot because they're the ones that are thrown into serving, that are thrown in to proximity to the Father. And they think they've deserved standing with the Father. It's just not true. I love what happens next. Verse 30. The elder brother's on a rant and he just keeps going. It's at that point where he should stop speaking, but he doesn't. Y'all have friends like that? Y'all are like that and I'm like that. Verse 30, but when this son of yours, it's not my brother, it's that son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you want to know who the fattened calf was for? It's usually for the elder brother's wedding. There's only one. He feels superior to his younger brother. I've never done what he's done, and yet you never honored me. I deserve this party far more than he does. How dare you, father, treat your younger son with grace? Get out of here. And I love the father's response. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word in verse 31 for son, we've seen the word son over and over and over again in our parable today. It's the parable of the two lost sons. Every other time the word son is used, it's a different word. It's a generic word meaning son. Here in verse 31, he changes the word. He changes it to the word technon. The idea is of a loving, familial father coming and saying, son, don't you know? Don't you know? You, you've always had access to it. I've been here the whole time. I love you. It's the type of language you would use for your son or daughter if you go into their room after they've had a, a nightmare in the middle of the night. You don't go in going, daughter, son, Yo, they're going to keep crying if you do that. You go in and say, hey, it's okay. Son, daughter, it's fine. I'm here. I find it interesting he didn't use that word with the younger son who's far away. He uses it with the elder son who's always been close because the elder sons that are prideful, self-righteous, and feel superior need to be reminded of the love of the father far more than the younger son. The younger son knows what he's done. And he's throwing himself upon the Father's grace. The elder son has no idea. No idea. The truth of the matter is, is that the result, or the resolve rather, to an elder son mentality is the same as a younger. Come to your senses. See the pridefulness of your own heart. Realize you're, you're entitled to nothing. And you don't serve God for his benefit. To, to receive from him, you serve God to give him glory. And that's why we pursue the Father. There's elder brothers among us. There's elder brother-ishness among us. So if we're battling with younger brother-ishness or elder brother-ishness in our own walks with Jesus, and I wanna ask this final question, and it's simply this, have I responded to God's initiating love? Because the result of the story is the same for both brothers. Both brothers desire the benefit of the father and not the father. Both brothers go about it in two very distinct ways. One brother 
repents and comes to the Father as he should. The other brother is stuck in his pride, self-righteousness, and feeling of superiority. Where are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, there's gonna be seasons and times in your life when you're gonna really struggle with this younger brother-ishness, which isn't a word, but we made it a word today. You're gonna struggle with it. You're gonna struggle with the desire to, to think that there's greener pastures elsewhere, to live recklessly, and, and hopefully you'll have men and women around you that love you enough to speak truth into your life in that moment. If you don't, allow me to speak truth into your life. Come to your senses. Come back to the Father. But the far more dangerous brother is the elder brother. The reason why he's more dangerous is because he's bought into the lie that, that his self-righteousness sets him apart, that proximity to the Father equals a relationship with him. And my prayer for you today, if you are an elder brother, or if you're a younger brother, is that you would come to your senses and respond to the initiating love of the Father, that he offers you something greater. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you have just bought into the elder brother lie, man, would you come to your senses? Would you realize yet again that God's initiating love invites the wayward and the prideful to experience redemption? Elder brother Ishness among us, hear the gospel again and respond. Respond because Jesus offers you something greater. He offers you something that's far better than your works, than your pride, than your self-righteousness, than your superiority. What he offers you is life, life eternal. So this morning here in a moment, we're gonna have an opportunity to respond to God's initiating love through communion. And here's what I'll say. Communion is for the family of faith. It's not for everybody if you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Christ. If God's initiating love to you as a wayward son or daughter or a prideful son or daughter has yet to penetrate the barrier of your heart, then hear me. Thank you for coming to Gospel City. We are so glad that you have chosen to be with us today. But here in a moment as we distribute the cup and the bread, just allow that to pass. Because what we're about to do is remember Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, because that is the greatest example of his initiating love. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. For kingdom disciples this morning, those that have followed Jesus, placed their faith and trust in Christ alone, spend a few moments as our team sings over us, searching your heart, and simply ask the Lord, where have I been a younger brother? Where have I been an elder brother? Repent. Allow Jesus to speak into and lay your heart bare before him and come to him afresh and anew, simply asking to experience his beautiful redemption. And then we'll distribute the cup and I just ask that you'd hold that for a moment as you pray and seek the Lord.